If you grew up in a big city, you may have heard the urban legend, alligators in the sewers. They got there when people brought back baby alligators from vacations in Florida and flushed them down the toilets. That's the kind of thing that, once you turn 12, you don't believe in anymore. Well, New York Times, February 10th, 1935, reports three teenagers were shoveling snow into a manhole on East 123rd Street. They look down and see an alligator which they pull out. It's not very healthy. And they carry it to the Lehigh Stove and Repair Shop at 441 East 123rd. Lots of neighbors witness it. People are quoted by name. Best guess, the gator came off a boat in the Harlem River. Or take this urban legend. I'd heard this one, but I never believed it. Turns out to be true. Ian Mayer in Portland, Oregon, three years ago, walks home one night with his girlfriend from a party where he'd had a couple beers, three beers, gets to his house, goes in the bathroom, start unzipping with one hand, lifting the lid with the other hand, and, you know, I get the lid maybe halfway open, and there was this wet, beady-eyed rat in the toilet just looking up at me. Right? Maybe you heard stories like this that don't seem they could possibly be true about somebody. They go in their bathroom late at night, they sit down, they get bit by a rat that came up through the pipes into the toilet. Here it is. The lid was down, so, you know, he must have come up through the sewer pipe somehow and swum through the lines and popped up into our toilet. Was the rat trying to get out of the toilet? No, I think he was just as almost as stunned as I was. No, he was he was just sort of perched in the bowl looking up when I opened the lid. Okay, horrifying. Ian, of course, quickly closes the lid, stands there, dumbstruck. What's his next move? It's obvious. You know, I took a minute, gathered myself, and then flushed. Cracked the lid just a little bit, and he's still there. He's just more wet now, and... He's probably uh, a little more alert now. <laughs> now he's mad. <laughs> yeah, now now he's ready to get out of there. He's ready to take action. Ian picks up the magazine rack by the toilet, which is heavy with three years old National Geographics. He puts this on top of the toilet lid, leaves the bathroom to figure out his next play. His girlfriend Chelsea is outside. I don't want to kill the rat because I've never killed an animal. It should be easy enough to... Just catch him and let him go outside. Sure. What I told myself that I needed in order to accomplish that plan, one, was some music. I had to... <laughs> I had to really? I that had was to step one? The, okay. That was step one, actually, and that was Chelsea's job. She had to turn, turn some loud music on. This was kind of to psych me up. Ian puts a leather garden glove on one hand and puts a rubber kitchen glove on top of that, figuring the rat's wet, that's going to be better. So I gear up, go in the bathroom, shut the door, uh, and then I, I guess I must have just kind of stood in there for five minutes or so because the next thing I know, Chelsea has the music turned down and she's asking me what's going on in there. I guess I don't I don't know what she thought had gone on, but uh, she was worried and was checking on me, making sure that everything was okay. 
And once she checked on me, that I think that kind of triggered the the man instinct. Like, mm-hmm. okay, come yeah. on, dude, get yeah. it together. Yeah, time it's for some just pride. A rat. Pride. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I take the magazine rack off of the toilet lid, crack the seat, and somehow, before I know it, he's halfway out of the toilet. Not good. Ian drops the lid, leans his weight on it, which catches the rat half in, half out of the toilet. Its head and front arms are sticking out, waving around. Now he just feels sorry for the little thing. But this is his chance to set it free. And so I'm thinking, okay, perfect. I've got him caught here. He can't move anywhere. I'll reach down, grab him, carry out the plan. Mm-hmm. Right when I reach down, he bites me. He bites my finger. I'll spare you the great details that follow. Let's just say that after another couple grabs, Ian comes to realize that he cannot capture the rat. He's going to have to kill him while he's trapped there halfway out of the toilet bowl, which Ian does with his not bare hands. It was terrifying. For months after that, maybe a year after that, Chelsea and I, we would just be extremely paranoid about sitting on the toilet, especially at night. Ian says half the people he tells this story to don't believe it. He thinks they just don't want to believe it. But it turns out that the pipes that lead from your house to the sewer are not full of water. They're mostly empty, unless you're doing your wash or something else that's sending a lot of water down. So rats can climb up through the pipes, and the only time that they actually need to hold their breath is when they get into the little reservoir in the toilet trap. In a way, it's surprising it doesn't happen more often. Ian says he's found another rat in his toilet since then. He now flushes when he walks into the bathroom, just to send water down the pipes as a precaution against vermin. And as for Chelsea? I think it was worse for Chelsea, because she didn't actually really ever see the rat in the toilet. I got to see it, and I came to terms with it uh, somewhat. For her, it was just, was still just sort of a a myth. Chelsea was left with the urban legend that rats could come up into the toilet. Only now she knew it was true. So when she went into the bathroom, her imagination could just go wild. Well, today on our radio show, we try to wave away the smoky vapor of illusion and myth. We dive into a few stories, a few urban myths to see what is real and what is not, so our imaginations don't have to run wild anymore. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. We bring you today three stories of real urban legends. Act one, what's that smell? In which a retired millionaire tries to understand the reality of a tough, seedy, inner-city neighborhood. Act two... Fleeing is believing. Foreigners come to the U.S. who believe all kinds of misinformation about us that turns out to be true. Act three, sleeper cells. Is it an urban myth that your cell phone gives you brain tumors? Stay with us. Act one, what's that smell? The way Steve Poisoner sees it, he did something admirable. Something daring, something unusual. And when I read his account of what he did, he seemed sincere about it, too. He's a bit of a corny writer, though even that you can kind of forgive him. He's not a professional author. At the age of 45, after starting one Silicon Valley company that he sold for $30 million, and a second one that sold for a billion dollars, Poisoner didn't need to work anymore. He says he wanted to do some good for people. And so he called a dozen public high schools and volunteered to be a guest teacher of some sort. 
One called him back, a high school called Mount Pleasant. And Poisoner got into his car and drove the 15 miles from his neighborhood in Los Gatos in Silicon Valley to East San Jose. I passed uh, nearby my neighborhood French bakery and the local Ferrari dealership. This is Steve Poisner reading from the book he wrote about this. Several miles and a couple of highways later, I took the Capital Expressway exit and drove into what felt like another planet. Signs advertising janitorial supply stores and taquerias. Exhaust hung over ten lanes of inner city traffic. Yellowing, weedy gardens uh, fronted many of the homes, as did driveways marred by large oil spots or broken down cars. When he sees the sound walls that separate California homes from the highway, he asks, were they keeping out the city's grit and noise or hiding profoundly sad lives? He's allowed in the school to teach one U.S. government class for one semester under another teacher's supervision. What he finds in the school are leaky roofs, hardened, unresponsive students, gangs and violence, a dropout rate twice the national average. He worries that one student is going to punch him, and later that this student and his thug friends are going to push him up against a wall. He wonders if the students are, quote, too busy ducking bullets to consider their careers. At the end of his first visit to school, he's relieved to find his Lexus still in the parking lot where he left it. The shadows grew longer and the surroundings became a bit scary. Opening the door to my car, I noticed a residential street just over the school's parking lot's fence. There was an old Cadillac resting on two flat tires. Something smelled rotten like trash that had sat around for too long, and a dog's raspy bark sounded uncomfortably close. And the only problem with this is, a lot of it might not be true. Good evening. Steve Poisner released a new book today. It is about his time as a substitute teacher at a high school in East San Jose. And what he put in print is drawing a lot of heat. ABC 7's Lisa Amin Galician is live tonight to explain... Steve Poisner's book got more attention than most do. Because in the seven years since he spent one semester at Mount Pleasant High School, Steve Poisner ran for assemblyman and lost, ran for a statewide office, California Insurance Commissioner, and won... He's in his fourth year in that job now. And today, he's one of two frontrunners to become the Republican candidate for the governor of California. And right after publication, his book, which is titled Mount Pleasant, jumped to number five on the New York Times bestseller list. Mount Pleasant High School students, teachers, parents, and alumni are outraged. Tonight, we are here to denounce Steve Poisoner's comments. Well, you know, it got very heated inside Barnes & Noble before Steve Poisoner's book signing. Uh, Eddie Garcia, the president of the Eastside Union School Board, got in Poisoner's face, challenging him about things that were written inside Mount Pleasant. Uh, I heard about Steve Poisoner and the controversy over whether his book got things wrong when a publicist for the book contacted our radio program. She wrote an email describing the incident at the bookstore this way, quote, Liberal activists took offense at how he describes the school accurately, as plagued by gangs, teen pregnancy, and disrepair. They are trying to shut him up and discredit his argument about charter schools. Uh, Poisoner makes a case for charter schools late in the book. This is a classic case of liberals refusing to listen to simple facts and rational solutions. So I read the excerpt of his book online. There's a full chapter, and Poisoner links to it from his campaign website. You can read it yourself. And it raised more questions than it answered. It's a very odd chapter all about Poisoner's first days teaching a class at Mount Pleasant. There's scene after scene where he's floundering, standing in front of the class asking big, abstract questions. Would you want to live in a country where the leader didn't want to lead, if the money issued by the government wasn't any good, or people were treated unfairly? None of the students responds. He's a rookie teacher. He doesn't know how to engage him yet. Nothing unusual there. But here's the strange thing. The conclusion Poisoner comes to, again and again during these scenes, isn't that he's doing anything wrong or has anything to learn as a teacher. 
Instead, he blames the kids. They're tough. They're unmotivated. They lack ambition. They're wired differently. The students, meanwhile, in every scene in the book, I read the whole book, seem utterly lovely. Polite. They don't interrupt. They don't talk back. They just seem a little bored. His very worst student is a graduating senior who's hoping to go into the Marines. Checking school records, I learned that Poisoner's unmotivated, unambitious class included one of the school valedictorians, Charles Rudy, who graduated and went to college. Could he be getting this so completely wrong, I wondered. Could he have written an entire book misperceiving so thoroughly what was happening in front of his own eyes and was now trying to use that book to run for governor? It seemed too incredible. And that's what brought me to San Jose last week, to visit the school and its neighborhood. My eyes were rolling throughout the entire book. <laughs> this is Joe Lovato. He teaches English at Mount Pleasant. His dad taught English at Mount Pleasant before him. Well, in, in the book, he tells stories of, of crossing the valley um, from his local Ferrari dealership past his local French bakery, crossing town, getting off the freeway into my neighborhood, and passing the taquerias, and then wondering about the, the profoundly sad lives of the people who live behind the sound walls along the, the highway there. That's, that's, that's me. I live there. I, I can tell you, I, I have the white picket fence. I have uh, two... Literally. Yeah, literally. Uh, a very well-manicured blonde. My infinity is in the front, and uh, I've got a real cute dog. I've got two kids uh, running around in the front yard uh, with my wife chasing them around. The derogatory statements to our students, the inaccuracies, the exaggerations, and that's the part we're upset about. Mark Halston is one of Joe's colleagues in the English department. In his book, Poisoner talks a few times about wishing that he could have a stand-and-deliver moment with his students. And Mark says that's a problem right there. There's a narrative he had in his mind. He saw teacher movies, and that was a narrative he had. And, and it fits his narrative to show that this school is a horrible school. I wouldn't work in the school he described. I, was, I would be afraid to work in a school that he described in the thing. It's almost like he's stepping over, he's stepping over bodies, and there's gunshots as he goes to his classroom every day. And it's completely inaccurate, but it fits his narrative. It fits promoting himself for, for the governor. And if anybody hasn't, some people say, well, this, it's not true. We know it's not true. It's an exaggeration. But anybody else in, outside of East San Jose reads this book, that's the truth. Driving around the neighborhood, it is hard to disagree with the teachers who say that it is a perfectly nice, middle-class, and working-class area. Occasionally, you'll see a house in bad shape, but overwhelmingly, it's nicely tended yards, garages, decent cars and SUVs in the driveways. It's suburban. I was surprised to learn that when Poisoner taught here in 2003, there was a golf course just a couple blocks from the school. There's still a lake and the Raging Waters water park. He doesn't mention those in the book. We caught a half-dozen local real estate agents who confirmed what the teachers told us, that the neighborhood looks the same today as it did back in 2003. If anything, they said, with the recession, it's gotten a little worse. Average house price in 2003 near the school was 457000 Today, it's 317000 Well, it's 445, and I'm standing in the staff parking lot where Steve Poisner used to park his car, I suppose. And um, I am hearing the raspy sound of a dog's bark. I can't see any beat-up old cars over the fence. Mainly, it's incredibly lush and green and beautiful. There are little purple flowers. There are palm trees. 
and it's just it's it's lovely and it smells nice though there is the dumpster for the school right by the parking lot conceivably on some day that he was out here that's what was making the trash smell was the school's own trash now we went to the neighborhood and we're told it hasn't changed that much since 2003 when you were there and so I ran all this by Steve Poisner the tidy houses the golf course what I did not smell in the parking lot are you overplaying the desperate poverty of this neighborhood no I don't think so I mean it's definitely not like uh, some inner city areas, and and I don't know what what you described doesn't doesn't strike me as the neighborhood I was I was at. I mean the, the uh, at least in two thousand two and two thousand three, I mean the, the the neighborhood is uh, rough and tumble, um, and that there's you know uh, definitely a lot of crime and no question lower income, and there's a a, a lot of a, a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, signs that that people were struggling struggling economically. You know, that's why the, you know the crime statistics for surrounding the school. You know, you can you can get those from the San Jose Police Department, like mm-hmm. I did, and we definitely documented. You know, that not only did it appear to be kind of a rough up and coming area, but the, you know the, the police will will tell you that too. So we went to the police, and they informed us that no, the neighborhood around Mount Pleasant High School is not especially dangerous or crime ridden. It's average for San Jose. And while San Jose might have a reputation in the richer suburbs around it for being sketchy and definitely was more dangerous in the 70s and 80s, a police spokesman told us that that view is out of date, an urban myth. According to FBI statistics, San Jose is one of the safest cities in the country. There are 371 violent crimes per 100,000 people in San Jose in 2003, the year Poisoner was there. You'd be more likely to be a victim of violent crime in Austin, Texas, or Seattle, or Phoenix or Columbus, Ohio, or San Francisco. When it came to property crime that year, you were more than twice as likely to have something stolen from you in Honolulu, Denver, Seattle, San Francisco, or nearly any big city you can name. In his book, Poisoner plays up the violence at the school itself. He mentions a shooting at the school that happened all the way back in 1990, where a Vietnamese student from another school shot a Mount Pleasant freshman. And Poisoner tells the story of a student of his who let him know that she wouldn't be at class for a couple days because her boyfriend was on trial for being the driver in a bank robbery. There's another student in Poisoner's class that Poisoner assumes must be in a gang, though confusingly in the book, Poisoner never actually goes to the trouble to find out if the student is in a gang. That's a student who Poisoner worries will hit him or get his thug friends and push him against a wall. So is the school dangerous? Well, I checked with the man who knows, Christopher Schroeder, the associate principal at Mount Pleasant, in charge of discipline. There is a gang presence in the area. They've been here for, we're into the second and sometimes third generation of gang families. We know this. But at school, we don't have gang problems per se. Our students are able to sit next to each other uh, in a classroom and not have conflicts. We don't have fights in the classroom. Uh, We don't have fights on campus. We have few fights. I'm going to, off the top of my head, I think we've had about a dozen fights this year. That's about the number of fights that you would get at any high school, even in a fancy neighborhood. There are no metal detectors in the school's entrances. Mr. Schroeder says the total number of gang members among the 1,900 students here, 50 at most. They are um, aware that we know who they are. And we also have gang intervention specialists who work with them every day, almost every day. We have a gang intervention specialist out there with those guys talking about their problems, talking about what's happening on the street, making sure that uh, we have peace on campus. When it comes to the dropout rate, Steve Poisner also seems to be choosing his statistics very selectively. My Pleasant's dropout rate, including the year he was there, is consistently better, sometimes far better, than the state and national dropout rates, which is a huge achievement for a school like Mount Pleasant that is two-thirds Latino. 
nationally, Latino dropout rates are much higher than those of other students. In his book, Poisoner doesn't mention any of those numbers, and he doesn't mention the school's stats at all, but instead quotes a number for the district that the school is in, the East Side Union High School District. Even here, he cherry-picks. In 2003, the year Poisoner was at the district, its dropout rate was slightly lower than the state and national averages. Poisoner instead chooses to quote the number for one of the two years during the past decade, 2005, when the district had twice as many dropouts as the state and national numbers. Statistically, Poisoner did not teach at a terrible school in a terrible neighborhood, but an average school in an average neighborhood. You got trouble. Oh, we got trouble. Right here in River City. Right here in City. With a capital T and that rounds with P and that stands for a pool. These are the dangerous toughs of Mount Pleasant High School rehearsing the Music Man in the brand new auditorium that the school just built. The school has 150 students studying animation in a special studio with rows of Macs and animation stands. This was all going on when Poisoner was at the school, too. There are 19 AP classes. There's a vocational program teaching metal and woodworking and computer-aided design. plus a variety of special projects and programs to close the achievement gap and get less privileged kids to college. School attendance is 95%. All right, I was stubborn. Everyone into place. Some things about the school, though, clearly could be better. The school doesn't hit its goals in statewide testing. It ranks in the 40th percentile of all California schools partly because a fourth of Mount Pleasant's student body is rated not proficient in English. But measured against schools with similar demographics, it's in the 70th percentile. For years, I was a reporter in the Chicago Public Schools for NPR's daily news programs. I've been in great schools. I've been in dangerous schools, urban schools, suburban schools. Mount Pleasant is definitely one of the better public high schools I've ever visited. And uh, I know that it may seem like I'm belaboring all this, putting this one book under a microscope point by point. But so many of the political discussions in our country just seem so disconnected from reality. Every year there are egregious examples of politicians and commentators who believe that if they repeat some non-fact over and over, it becomes true. And the more I looked into Poisoner's book, the more it seemed like one of those rare cases that is so obviously and provably untrue. Though in Poisoner's case, what made this especially interesting was that from his book, it seemed very possible that he really is just a well-meaning, idealistic guy who wants to help people who just got a lot of this wrong. Though when I asked Steve Poisoner if that's what happened here, that it is not a dangerous, bad school, he stuck by his guns. You write really honestly in the book about how you aren't from a neighborhood like this and how naive you are going in. I mean, you write really, really honestly about it. Do you think it's possible that you went into this neighborhood and you just misperceived how, how dangerous and tough it is? And, and that's what people are pointing out. Well, most people who are reading the book you know, just don't have that reaction. There are some... Well, no, but I'm not talking about I'm talking about the people in, in the neighborhood who know the neighborhood. I don't think it's a surprise that people who are in that neighborhood... Um, you know, bristle, you know, at blunt observations. But do you and think I, it's but, possible but, but, that... But, 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 do, way, you, but is, do you think it's possible? I mean, you talk so honestly about this in the book. Do you think it's possible that, that, that you just misperceived it because, because you weren't used to that kind of neighborhood? Well, this is, uh, this is a book about my experience. Exactly. And so that's, that's all that the book's about, you know, based on my background. So I'm taking... So, it, so are was, you saying was, you do think it's possible? So you, so you think it might be possible? No, I'm not saying that. What upsets me from the beginning and even now is his intent. Again, English teacher Mark Holston. 
soon after his experience at Mount Pleasant, he ran for assemblyman. And I think what kind of turned me off to him was I got some of his campaign literature, and on there he had businessman slash teacher based on his one month, I mean, his one semester teaching, and he claimed he was a teacher by profession. And right away, that's what kind of offended me. Using a centerpiece of his campaign was his experience at Mount Pleasant High School. In his commercials, he said, I've taught in schools. I know what it's like to work at his schools. I can fix, you know, the problems and things like that. So, and it became quick. It came, from my understanding, it was obvious that he was there for, to exploit our students, to exploit our school. He came there saying he had no political ambitions. He told our principal, this is not about politics. I just want to give back to the community. I just want to see what it's like to teach in a, teach in a school and get a better understanding of what the schools are like. Even in his book, he says, I had no intention of running for office when I went there. Poisoner still insists on that. It was two months after he stopped teaching at the school that he filed papers to start fundraising to run for assemblyman. And the spring after that, his campaign came back to Mount Pleasant to shoot a commercial with testimony from teachers and students about what Poisoner had done for the school. A videographer set up a camera and lights in one of the classrooms during seventh period, and students were ushered in one at a time. In campaigning, including in one of his campaign biographies, a biography which, by the way, calls Mount Pleasant an inner-city high school, Poisoner also touts the fact that the principal of Mount Pleasant named him Rookie Teacher of the Year. Oh, don't... <laughs> the Rookie of the Year thing, it was... Mark Hansen and Joe Lovato explained that at the end of school that year, the principal quickly wrote up a bunch of certificates on his computer for a staff party. Lots of people got them for all kinds of things. And uh, that's the other part that really incensed me when he put out his press release and said as a result of his, he received a Rookie of the Year award as if it was voted on statewide and there was a board and there was a panel and the essays were written about how great he was. It was a certificate printed out. Everybody that was leaving was getting certificates. And that was a certificate of appreciation. You know, the reason I've been wanting to talk to people about the book is just because I hate to see somebody's character get assassinated unfairly, which is my judgment is what's been happening. Todd Richards is the social studies teacher who supervised Steve Poisoner in classroom 612 back in 2003. He's still there. Well, you know, it, it's still largely as it would have been when, when Poisoner was here. You, know, you can see there's a usual whiteboard in front. There's a screen for the uh, LCD projector. In the debate among Mount Pleasant teachers over whether Steve Poisoner was a Machiavellian schemer who used them or a sincere, perhaps slightly naive guy who actually wanted to help out, Mr. Richards is a principled agnostic. We can't know what he was thinking, Richards says, so let's judge his actions. Richards says that he was as suspicious as anybody when this millionaire showed up in his classroom. But over the course of the year... I came to, to, to think that he was someone who cared deeply about the students. You know, I'd had people from the business world come in and really talk down the students, not put any effort into it, speak to them in jargon. I mean, just, you know, I never want you back kind of thing. Um... Poisoner clearly worked very, very hard on this class. He was a rookie. He made rookie mistakes. But he clearly wanted the kids to have a valuable experience. And he clearly cared that they graduate and do well. When I recorded Mr. Richards teaching a class, his sixth period college-level macroeconomics class for seniors. So C plus I plus G plus X minus M. He asked me if I would like to take five minutes and ask a few questions of the students. He left the room so his presence wouldn't bias anybody. I asked the class if there was anything that they would want me to ask Poisoner on their behalf or to say to him. One senior raised his hand and said that he just heard from colleges. I'm going to Berkeley. Take that, Poisoner. <laughs> No, seriously, because it's like, how, how is he going to, like, 
talk about us like the way he did when we had almost nine people get into Berkeley this year. That's ridiculous. Yvette Rodriguez, another senior, Yvette spoke Rodriguez. up. Like, a lot of the things that he said is something that you would expect someone who doesn't live in this neighborhood to think of us. Like, they were, he was just, like, really quick to judge. Like, he didn't grow up here. He grew, And he says it in, in, in his book, like, where he grew up, they don't have any of this. So how is he just going to, like, I'm not going to go judge him and say, oh, you know, he's, like, a rich white guy and doesn't know, like, because I don't know him. But yet he's over here judging us. That's just being, that's stereotyping. I think he needs to like come out and say you know like apologize I think at least because a lot of us felt really offended by it. When I visited the school I went to Mr. Richard's class and I asked the students if they had questions for you or anything that they would like me to say to you and they had one request. One senior girl said she'd like you to admit you got things wrong. She'd like you to apologize. What do you want to say to her? Well, no. I mean, it's, I, I appreciate her feedback, and I appreciate their passion. And by the way, it's been pretty interesting to see how much uh, school spirit has emerged as, as some people at the school were, were you know, concerned about whether their school was being fairly characterized. But let's just step back for a second and, and, and just think about what I've done and what I'm doing. So here I sell my last company for a lot of money, and I'm pretty financially well off. And I decide to go into, into Mount Pleasant High School. And then after I teach at the school for an extended period of time, I then go back to the school every year to do guest teaching. And then my wife and I you know, get all kinds of requests from teachers and students about certain projects, and we end up donating over $80,000 to the school over a period of many years. You know, I love the school. And then I write this book about my experiences at the school. And the purpose of the book even the critics at the school, I guess, seem to understand the purpose of the book is to zero in on the fact that Mount Pleasant High School is underperforming. Huge opportunities to improve. The school is in the bottom 40%. And, and I guess you can, you can argue uh, about my characterizations of the school. I, I stand by them. But no one seems to be arguing with the conclusions of the book. Well, sort of. Some conclusions, obviously, people do argue with. But this particular conclusion that being at the 40th percentile among California public schools is not good enough, is one that's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle in a lot of the discussion at the school. And that's, that's the part that, that kind of frustrates me. Sudhir Karandikar created the AP Calculus program at Mount Pleasant. He teaches four classes of AP Calculus. He's the only teacher I saw at school who could be described as dapper and the only one wearing a suit, a charcoal gray pinstripe. He's been at Mount Pleasant 14 years, and he says, sure, Poisoner got it wrong when he wrote that this is a dangerous school. The whole ducking bullets and the kid's going to hit him and his Lexus is going to get stolen. It was either a gross exaggeration for the sake of making a dramatic book, or he just misread it. Let's move on. We know, we know he got the, the safety issue wrong. As far as academic performance of this school, he was dead on. Academically, I don't find anything wrong in his conclusions or assessments of our school academically. We should be doing a better job with these kids, Mr. Karandakar said. That's what we should move the discussion to now. A few teachers told me that they agreed with Poisoner, that academically the school should be better. And they like the fact that Poisoner gives lots of details in his book to help his readers understand the money problems that the school faces, and that he shows some of the everyday teaching problems they're up against. Stuff that isn't really talked about in the news or normal political discussions about schools. Here's English teacher Vivian Brixen. 
he talks about one student that, that tells him, uh, I don't think I want to do that, <laughs> when he's trying to encourage them to, to work a little harder. And, um, and that, that is a kind of a surprising, uh, you know, a surprising challenge to face as a teacher. No, I don't think I want to do that. And, and the lack of motivation um, is a daily challenge, I think, for teachers in the school, even if they're veterans. Steve Poisner says this is exactly what he hopes readers would take from his book. He wanted to lead to a better discussion about how to improve schools. In the book, he talks mostly about charter schools as being a good laboratory for new ideas. In his gubernatorial campaign, he also talks about cutting down on the central school bureaucracy in California, giving more control of the curriculum and more money to local schools, two things that teachers like, of course. Many of Mount Pleasant's teachers are less keen on two of Poisoner's other big proposals, to make it easier to fire teachers and suspend rules at the bottom 40% of California schools, and to expel from public schools all the students who are in the country illegally, which would, of course, affect students at Mount Pleasant. Poisoner told me that in the end it doesn't matter if he got facts wrong about the school, because everywhere but at Mount Pleasant itself, this is the discussion that he hopes his book will engender. Most Californians have absolutely no idea you know, what goes on, you know, in a classroom, uh, what goes on in the public education system. And so at the, at the end of it all, a month from now or, or a year from now, when people are debating this book, they're not going to be debating whether uh, my characterization of the smells in the neighborhood are the same as yours when you went there. I mean, the purpose of the book is to improve the public education system. English teacher Mark Colston sees this one differently. He says, for Poisoner to misread what this school and this neighborhood are all about, says a lot about his judgment. And that does mean something. Well, half the state of California who, he, who he's trying to represent looks like our neighborhood. Our neighborhood looks more like California than the neighborhood he comes from. So I think he's completely out of touch. I, I hate to think that somebody, even getting this far, could be that naive and be that clueless. That's, that's even scarier. Because he's not, he's gonna, I'm sure he's going to run for something else, and he can't be that way off. Oh, it's, it's terrifying if he's that way off. Again, this is an average high school, and if he was a governor, he'd be the chief educator for the state of California. And if he can misinterpret what he sees in this school and portray a school as one of the toughest when it's an average high school in California, it's scary for our future of California if he ever got elected. One week after Poisoner's book made it to number five on the bestseller list, it dropped to number 33. The campaign declined to give sales figures for the book and declined to say whether it bought enough copies itself in that first week to put the book on the bestseller list. The principal at Mount Pleasant told me she now finds herself with an awkward dilemma. Poisoner has donated the profits from the book sales to the school, and she's not sure that they should take it. He got so many things wrong about Mount Pleasant and offended so many people. But at the same time, with budgets being slashed, it's hard for her to turn her back on any money that might help her students. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk. I really hate the trip, but I gotta low. They croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke Fool, I'm the kind of cheater Little homies wanna be like on my knees In the night, saying prayers in the street Coming up, what refugees halfway around the world Know about us, thanks to Chevy Chase And other true urban legends That's in a minute From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International When our program continues 
It's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our show, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, True Urban Legends. We're wading into the vapory shadows of urban myth to see what is real and what is not. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Fleeing is Believing. Refugees often spend decades in camps waiting, waiting for wars to end back home, waiting to be resettled, some of them to the United States. This leaves a lot of time to think about what the future might hold and makes for a huge rumor mill fed by third cousins and friends of friends who get to the United States and send back word of what it's like. And uh, that's where the confusion begins. Mary Wiltenberg, a reporter who has spent years documenting refugee life in America, has this story. Say you're a refugee. Once you've survived whatever hell you fled, plus 10 more years in a crowded camp, there are rumors about the U.S. you want to believe. America's a land of easy money, endless food, plentiful jobs, machines to cook and clean for you. Still, it's not like you'll believe just anything. The refugees I've talked with say a lot of the rumors they hear seem way too far-fetched to be true. Some people are very fat. You cannot imagine how fat they are. Kissing in public and all of that is normal. You shouldn't look. You shouldn't be surprised by it. When people grow old in America, as they become seniors, they send them to nursing houses to live in. When they go to the beach, they dress up in the swimsuit, which I call it underwear. In America, they say, like, white people kiss their dogs, they hold it, and it's like, that is crazy. How can anybody kiss a dog? What makes these rumors so unbelievable often is how inscrutable or frightening or taboo they would have been back home. I never, never thought, you know, people would show affection in public. It was just un- unbelievable. Faiza Muhammad is Somali and grew up as a refugee in Kenya, where the whole idea of PDA was unimaginable, especially among unmarried people. When refugees like her are accepted for resettlement in the U.S., they're bombarded with information about the country in these three-day orientation marathons. They cover everything from fire safety to banking, sexual harassment to how to use an airplane toilet. Faiza's orientation leader actually mentioned that it's common for American couples to express affection in public. And did you believe it when they said it? No. Because the person that, who, that was giving us the orientation was Somali herself. So I really didn't even think that she knew the reality of it. Another problem is Hollywood, the source of some of the most enticing images of America and some of the most exaggerated. Sanisha Milovanovic, a refugee from the former Yugoslavia, spent years waiting in Germany before coming to the U.S. In Berlin one Christmas, a movie came on TV, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. In case you've been spared the pleasure, it features Chevy Chase as a guy who's, let's say, intense about seasonal decorating. He's covered every inch of his house with lights, nests of sparking extension cords, Santa-related props. We're going to have the best-looking house in town, Russ. I think you might be overdoing it, Dad. And, um, you know, when you look at the, you know, either spoof movies or comedies, you know, they overblow out of the proportion, you know, many things just to make it funny. And, uh, you know, when I saw it, I just thought, ah, this cannot be true. (laughs) This is too much lights. It's a lot of lights, Dad. You want something you can be proud of, don't you? A few years after they watched this, Sanisha and his wife moved to Fargo, North Dakota. One night, 
Their first winter there, Sanisha got home, and his wife told him she had something to show him outside. I didn't know what was it, so, you know, we got in the car, and we went around a couple of neighborhoods, residential area, and all of a sudden, you know, I saw the whole row of houses, and to me, it seems like every single one of them had some kind of a lights on it. So lovely. And some people had not only the lights, but they also had the props, you know, snowmans or uh, reindeers and things like that. And we said to each other, they really do decorate their houses as Chevy Chase did. It's a beaut, Clark. It's a beaut. You taught me everything I know about exterior illumination. Thank you. Thank you. Even years later, former refugees recall these moments with incredible clarity the shock or bewilderment or comedy of realizing that's true? People here don't follow soccer? Men really date other men? Americans sleep in bed with their cats? A lot of times the reaction is, whoa, okay. But once in a while, the moment changes a person's whole image of America. Hazem Tai, an Iraqi refugee, had heard back home that ordinary Americans could go into stores and buy guns. But that seemed incredible. How could a country keep law and order if its civilians were armed? Then one day, not long after his family arrived in Phoenix, they pulled up to a stoplight next to a guy on his motorcycle. He didn't look like a policeman, but for some reason he had a gun on his belt. We looked at him. He had a tattoo, a leather jacket with a bird on it on the back, and a ponytail. He didn't look official to us. Who were you with? Me, my wife, and three kids. And I'm advising them not to look, not to look. Don't bring his attention. Just take a quick look and don't turn your face. And then my kids started asking me, why would he have a gun? Uh, What is he planning to do? And I said, I don't know. One especially scary rumor, one that refugees from all over the world told me they heard but couldn't fathom, is that in America, people without homes sleep on the streets. When you come from someplace where it would be unthinkably shameful to let that happen to a relative, it's hard to believe. When Haider Hamza arrived in the U.S. from Iraq four years ago, he was sure this was a myth. Then, late one night, he went walking in Central Park. And there was a bench, and I saw an older woman not looking very happy, uh, sleeping on that bench. And uh, she, you know, she looked in a, in a pretty bad shape. So I got close, I tried talking to her, and she started asking for help and things like that. And, and I, I didn't know why she was there. I don't know what happened, so I didn't know what to do. Um, I picked up the phone and I called 911. Uh, and a lady answered, um, and I gave a description of the woman, and she said, well, is the woman bleeding? Um, and I went to check, and I said, no, she's not. And she said, she, is she naked? Um, and I said, I know. And she, she paused for a second. I said, well, is she, is she homeless? And I said, I, I don't know. So I walked up to the woman and said, excuse me, ma'am, are, are you homeless? And she said, of course I'm homeless. So I got up on the phone and I said, yes, she's, she's homeless. No matter who tells you that there are people who are homeless here in the United States, it's impossible to believe 
That's Hazem, who saw the guy on the motorcycle with the gun. Now he works as a case manager at a resettlement agency, helping fellow refugees transition to American life. A couple years ago, he told a group of clients that if they missed rent payments or couldn't find a job, they could wind up homeless and have to live in a shelter. They thought he was lying. Frustrated, he loaded them into a van and drove them past a homeless shelter in downtown Phoenix with a line out the door. They were shocked. And they asked me what it is. Are those really homeless people? And I said, yes. And you could easily lose your home or apartment. If you don't pay, you'll uh, be evicted after a few months. It happened so fast. You come here lost as can be, and within a couple of years, you're the ambassador, the friend of a friend fielding calls from overseas in the middle of the night. You're showing around dazed new arrivals and watching their astonishment at the guns in Walmart, the dogs in handbags, the couples kissing in the park. And you're the one telling them, don't worry, don't stare. That's normal here. Mary Wiltenberg lives in Atlanta. Act three, sleeper cells. The scariest urban myths are the ones that are about stuff that is everywhere, that we use every day, that we can't avoid. You know, that our drinking water might be impure, that there are toxins in our food, that killer earthquakes might be coming to the West Coast, that the polar ice caps might melt. Oh, wait a second, some of those are actually confirmed by scientists. Which brings me to cell phones. There's an article in GQ magazine recently about cell phones, about whether they're bad for us. The only honest way to think of our cell phones, the article says, is that they're tiny, low-power microwave ovens without walls that we hold to the sides of our heads, which is, is true. Cell phones and ovens both use the same kinds of waves, microwave frequencies, but, of course, microwave ovens use much, much, much more power, enough to cook meat. And there's lots of research out there that's found no negative effects on our bodies from cell phones. In fact, there's another article in Harper's Magazine just this month about the same thing, are cell phones bad for us? And that article points out that for all the research that's found that cell phones make us lose sleep, make us think slower, break apart our DNA, cause brain damage in children, there are just as many studies, if not more, that say that cell phones make us more sleepy, make us think faster, don't break our DNA, and don't affect children one way or another. Other countries, especially in Europe, take the possible threat of cell phones much more seriously than we do here in the U.S. Health ministries in Canada, Russia, Finland have asked for restrictions on sales of cell phones to children. France is trying to ban cell phones in schools. Some European governments are trying to ban Wi-Fi in government buildings and on campuses. Wi-Fi also uses those microwave frequencies. And the National Library of France already got rid of it. People have protested and torn down cell towers in Spain, Ireland, Australia, and Israel. In 2007, the European Union's environmental agency warned that cell phone technology, quote, could lead to a health crisis similar to those caused by asbestos, smoking, and lead in petrol. The operative word there, of course, is could. The weird word is petrol. So uh, what should we believe? Are they bad for us or aren't they? Christopher Ketchum, who wrote the GQ article, talked me through some of the most troubling studies. Now, in your article, you lay out a lot of data, a lot of studies. What's the most alarming evidence you have? Go ahead, scare us. All right. Well, there's there's a lot. Um, there is something called Interphone, which is a 13-country study, uh, European-wide, and also including Israel, 
that um, has been looking at the uh, incidence of brain tumors and tumors generally as related to cell phone use. And the big conclusion from that study is that uh, that for those users of cell phones who use cell phones for 10 years or more on the same side of the head, there's a 40% chance, increased chance of, uh, of getting a brain tumor. A brain um, tumor on that side of the on head? On that side of the head. Probably shaped like a cell phone. Um, so the, All right, that the, last part you're just making up. <laughs> just making up. Um, there is uh, an independent Swedish study in, uh, a couple of years ago found that there was a 420% increased chance of getting brain tumors for those who are using cell phones uh, from uh, at age 20 or earlier. So four times more. Yeah, four chance. times more. Because uh, and the, the, the speculation is that this is because children's or young people's brains are uh, not fully formed, their skulls are thinner, so they absorb more radiation. Um, Alan Frey, this neuroscientist who in many ways shepherded me through a lot of the, uh, the early studies, when he was uh, working for the Office of Naval Research in the 1970s, he found that... Um, Cell phone type radiation uh, could cause blood brain barrier leakage. That is, it could cause perforations in the uh, barrier between the circulatory system and the brain. Now, that's really bad news. Okay, Um, give me another. um, Well, for example, a researcher biologist named Henry Lai at the University of Washington found that uh, that, uh, after two hours of exposure to uh, microwave frequencies. At the level that comes out of a cell phone. At the level that comes out of a cell phone, you can have uh, uh, DNA damage after two hours. So double-strand breakage in DNA. Now, so these are the studies that that show that that we do have reason to worry. Aren't there a lot of other studies on the other side saying, like, no, 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 we don't have to worry? Oh, yeah, there are lots and lots of studies showing that. And uh, and the, the... Interesting. The really interesting thing to me is uh, that if you divide the many, many studies on this on this subject about the biological effects of cell phone and it's hundreds of studies, right? It's hundreds of studies, hundreds of studies over the years. When you look at these studies and divide them by funding, you find that when that that seventy five percent of those studies that were independently funded, that is, that had no funding from from industry, from from the the Nokia business, the Ericsson's, just the telecom industry generally, you find that seventy five percent of those studies show some type of effect. Those studies. Wait, wait. You, let me just, uh, just go. So, 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 in other words, if there's no funding from telephone companies or people associated with them, seventy-five percent of the studies show yes, the the electromagnetic signals out of cell phones actually do affect our cells. They have a biological effect. Yes. Okay. Now, if you uh, if you look at the studies, the pool if you pool the studies that uh, that are funded by industry, you find that only twenty-five percent of those studies show a biological effect. So there appears to be, and the argument has been among the scientists who I interviewed, there it appears to be a, science, a skewing, a, a data skewing that is related to uh, the source of funding. Now, the EPA used to, used to look into this uh, to see the environmental effect of this kind of radiation, but, but you're right that it stopped. Talk about why it stopped. Well, what happened is, is uh, there were... In the 1970s, there was serious laboratory research into the biological effects of, of microwave radiation. Uh, EPA was foremost in this. You also had NIOSH. National Ni- Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Yes. And also FDA, Food and Drug Administration. These were all agencies that were studying these effects. And, um, 
And then you know, the Reagan administration came into office. Star Wars, you know, these huge r- radar-operated. This is uh, all the 1980s. This yeah. is all the 1980s. Radar-operated uh, missile defense systems were to be implemented, and uh, and military interests, Westinghouse and Boeing and huge, you know, that produce all sorts of uh, mm-hmm. the radar systems for the military, along with the military, pressured EPA to pressured Congress. To pressure EPA to stop looking to stop this kind of research. This and is what your this is what your sources inside the EPA told you. Yes, that's yeah. what my sources inside the EPA said. And funding was, was taken away from the EPA. Funding was taken away from the FDA. And those researchers, those civilian scientists who were looking into this, were told, "Listen, you, you don't need to look into this anymore. We're going to handle it in the Air Force." And right now, like, who, which federal agency is responsible for making sure that? Our cell phones aren't killing us. The the FCC, but the but you know Lewis Schlesson told me. Um, and Schlesson is uh, Lewis Schlesson is the, the publisher of Microwave News. He's a, I think one of the foremost experts on the the various studies. Let me let me just read what he what he said. He said the committees setting the EM the electromagnetic safety levels historically have been dominated by uh, by representatives from the military by companies like Raytheon and, G- and General Electric, by the telecom companies, and now by the cell phone industry. And Schlesson tells me that it is basically a Trojan horse for the private sector to, to dictate public policy. So, Okay, so I remember when cell phones first came out, and, and, and there were scare stories about whether or not they were harmful and whether they might cause brain tumors. And at that point in the 90s, it was all very speculative. And then it seemed like those stories went away, and, and I... F- as somebody who, you know, just like reading the news, I just thought like, well, I guess that means that there's nothing to worry about. Are you saying, yes, we now know cell phones do give us brain tumors? Or are you saying, yes, we now know we need to worry that there's not enough research to know they're safe? The latter. Listen, even the FDA will tell you their, their official notice on this issue is that we, the FDA, are not certain about the safety of these devices. But at the same time, the FDA will say, but there doesn't appear to be a risk either. So they're hedging, they, they hedge it. So if the safety isn't clear, but then they have like hundreds of millions of them out being used, so it's just like a big science experiment. Huge science experiment. Uh, one of the, the, the uh, scientists who, who I interviewed, uh, Leif Salford, the Swedish uh, neuroscientist, said, this is the largest biologic, human biological experiment ever. Because we really don't know what what the effects are going to be, what the long term effects are going to be, what the short term effects are going to be, and is this one of these things where where um, where we don't know the answer, but lots of people are looking into it, and a lot of money is going into it to figure this out, or is this one of these things where we don't know the answer, and really nobody, like not much money is really going into this to figure this out? In this country, there is almost there is nothing is going on. There's just almost no research. In Europe, there's a lot of research. In Israel, which has some, one of the highest per capita uses of cell phones, there's a lot of research. In Sweden, you know, home of uh, Ericsson, a lot of research. Now, how did you get I- into the subject? D- did you know somebody? How did you get into this? My uh, uh, my daughter's grandmother bought her a cell phone in France, in Paris. And at the same time, I saw a little notice in Le Monde about just it was a little tiny nose buried deep in the paper about possible risks from cell phones and i said wait a minute let me start looking into this 
And given all that you've learned, have your daughter's a teenager? She's 14. So have you tried to talk her into not using her cell phone? Oh, I talk to her all the time. I'm always yelling at her. And how's that go? Uh, badly. <laughs> she, I, I even, uh, yeah, she, she now uses it to text most often. But sometimes I catch her on it and I get really pissed off and... Uh, that is, I catch her with it to her ear, and I said, "No, you have to use your. You have to use your. If you're going to use it, you have to use your speakerphone. If you're going to keep it near your body, it has to be off." Well, do you think? Do you think that she believes you that the cell phone is dangerous? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> if that's a problem, I don't know if I don't know if she believes me. And so, um, given your success with your own child. How do you feel about your chances of success, you know, writing articles and convincing other people, you know, to, to put down their cell phones? Oh, I, most people think I'm crazy. Most people think I'm absolutely bonkers. They, they, they just dismiss, they dismiss outright what I, what I, what I have to say. Dismiss it like won't even listen to the evidence. No, they, 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 they will listen to the evidence and then they'll, you know, call their friend to tell them about it on their cell phone, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh. They don't care. They just. Uh, one time I was in an elevator coming down, and I and some guy was pecking away in his cell phone and put it to his head, and I, and I mentioned it. What did you say? Wait, what did you say? I said to him, "You know that device is really that device could be very dangerous for you." And I don't know why I said that. I guess I was just being nosy and being tiresome, and and and, and the whole car just started laughing. They <laughs> 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 just started laughing. They're like, "Yeah, yeah," you know. And I think they were. La- I think they were laughing at me. Christopher Ketchum is an investigative reporter. We link to his GQ article at our website. Truth is here. The truth is here. Truth is here. The truth is here. Truth is here. The truth is here. I said the truth is here. The truth is here. I want more. Give me more. We want more. Damn it, I'm back to demand. We get more. We want more. I want more. My program is produced today by Sarah Koenig with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Melissa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Seth Lenz, our production manager, Emily Condens, our office manager. Production help from Brian Reed. Special thanks today to Cliff Dirksen, Michael Michonne, Rat and Plumbing, and audio expert John Frazee in Portland, Officer Jose Garcia, Celia Johnson, Linda Lutton, Tracy Delangelo, Teresa Sanders at WABE in Atlanta, and Freeze, the ESL program at DeKalb Technical College in Clarkston, Georgia, the International Community School, the International Rescue Committee, the Refugee Women's Network, and all the refugees that we interviewed who didn't make it onto the show. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where this week you can see the raw data that we think contradicts Steve Poisoner's findings at Mount Pleasant. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who wants all of us here at WBEZ to get back to our exercise programs back on the stair machine. Summer's coming. Some people are very fat. You cannot imagine how fat they are. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. R.I. Public Radio International.